welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr Mimi O'Neill, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field, and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So, whether you're a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. Join us as we delve into a wide range of topics, from the emotional impact of music to the neuroscience of musical perception, all in a way that is easy to understand and engaging. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who will share their latest research findings and provide practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Dr. Niels Christian Hansen is affiliated with Aarhus Institute of Advanced Studies and Royal Academy of Music in Denmark. He is the General Secretary of the European Society for the Cognitive Sciences of Music, ESCOM, and a member of the Danish Young Academy as well as the chief editor for Empirical Musicology Review. In 2020, he co-founded the global MusiCovid Research Network, comprising of 450 researchers from 49 countries who are studying the role of music during the coronavirus pandemic. Hansen's research comprises behavioural, computational, neurophysiological and corpus-based studies spanning a wide range of topics, with a special emphasis on expertise and predictive processing of music. So hello and welcome to the Psychology of Music podcast and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. If I may, I would like to start by asking you how you identify or how you situate your work in terms of music psychology or psychology of music, music cognition, empirical musicology, etc. Yeah, um, well, I would kind of say all of the above really. Um, so, so, so my kind of uh, journey into this field has has been has kind of passed over a lot of those different uh, different types of uh, types of disciplines or whatever we want to call them. So so I I probably started out in the music cognition uh, field, uh, very interested in you know kind of the um, the psychological aspects or the cognitive elements of of musical structure. So you know how do we structure music, but how does the structure also come come across when we listen to music and when we compose music or improvise or whatever. Um, and then I, I was involved in a lot of kind of um, corpus studies and and like um, empirical work. Uh, you know, I, I did some work on the uh, uh, normalized pairwise variability index, which is kind of an index of um, uh, rhythmic uh, variability, you could say, on a, on a node by node uh, level. And that kind of you know, started out as a as a as a cognitive hypothesis that then later on it turned out that it was perhaps a better measure uh, to do kind of stylometrics and um, so you know characterize how did how did music in the different countries in in Europe develop throughout the 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 um, common era and um, classical music period and so on so so that is very much empirical musicology i would say um and then finally when it comes to so, well, well, I should also mention perhaps I'm 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 together with Dan, Daniel Mullenstein and I'm the editor in chief for for Empirical Musicology Review, so a, a journal where we uh, where we uh, try to uh, try to uh, curate exactly this kind of research. Um, 
And then finally, when it comes to music psychology, I would say uh, that over the last few years, I've, I've done a lot of work on the role of music during during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that that very much became a music psychology project where, you know, the key questions is, you know, how do how do people use music in their everyday life when they're struggling in different ways, when they're sitting at home and so on? Um, so you know that that's that's classical music psychology, I would say. So so you know um, it's both an advantage and a disadvantage. I think that I I span very uh, broadly, um, but you know I I am um, I really um, you know I really like being part of uh, such a broad um, field and being able to contribute in different ways to to different different questions. So it's it's always been quite curiosity driven for me, I guess, um, and that means that it becomes very multi you know multi methods very interdisciplinary and so on yeah great thank you your your covid project i think you were one of the quickest researchers to sort of see that opportunity whereas the rest of us were still sort of working out what was going on and how we were going to be able to buy food and things so congratulations on that project i believe the work that you're currently undertaking explores the role of digitally encoded musical corpora um, in terms of separating retrospective surprise and prospective uncertainty in the improvisation of musical melodies. Could you tell us a bit about where you, um, or where your interest in that topic came from? Yeah, I guess, uh, as I kind of alluded to before, I I, um, I trained as a music theorist and as a classical pianist as well. So I started out, you know, kind of really working with the musical material, figuring out, okay, how do we, how do we, how do we learn new uh, music? How do we, you know, memorize it and so on become able to kind of uh, perform it and so on and then you know being a, a music theorist analyzing music and so on i i realized that you know you can only really do that if you consider the psychological aspects so so in my view music theory is a uh, kind of a cognitive discipline um then of course you can maybe disagree or agree with that but you, you know i think to understand musical structure you need to understand human psychology as well, because it's human psychology that created that musical structure and it's human psychology that, you know, um, processes that, that, uh, that um, the, um, the, uh, the sounds that come out of that musical structure, I guess. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's very much where it started out, you know, being a music theorist, I realized I have to, I have to learn about music psychology, I have to learn about cognition, I maybe have to learn about neuroscience and so on to kind of uh, be able to answer these these uh, kinds of questions. So that's really how it's it started, you know, as a kind of a gradual development through uh, towards, uh, yeah, things getting more and more scientific, I guess, and empirical and cognitive and so on. Yeah, sure. So um, what, what are the sort of aims of this project? What what are the goals that you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, so so the what I'm what I'm uh, um, what I will be presenting, uh, you know, at the Music Cognition Matters um, series is kind of an overview over the the work that I've been doing over the last ten years on on um, on musical expectations and um, expertise and and so on. So 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 what we've been doing there is actually looking at yeah what I call. Uh, you know, the, these are kind of com complex, long, uh, long uh, words or concepts like retrospective surprise and prospective uncertainty. You could also just say surprise and uncertainty, I guess. But by by putting these um, these extra words in there, we're kind of emphasizing that 
you know, we have to be aware that surprise is something that happens after an event and uncertainty is something that characterizes the state before an event happens. And, and musical ex expectations and predictive processing, you know, have both of these elements in them. And, and we see that if we, if we only talk about, you know, confirmations and violations of expectations, we don't, we don't really, uh, we will never re really understand what's, what's really going on because musical expectations are, you know, um, you could say temporally constrained and multi-dimensional in the sense that you know you can be more or less right about what happens, but you can also be more or less sure about what happens. So, so what have, what we've been doing over the, these last ten years or so is is, is looking at how does um, how does surprise and uncertainty kind of um, uh, you know interact in interesting ways to to explain you know the way that we perceive music, the way that we play music compose, improvise, and, um, you know, when, whenever music uh, uh, plays with our emotions and so on, it's usually also an, an uh, intricate interplay of these, of these uh, different components of what uh, musical expectancy is. Yeah, 10 years is a long time to have been working on, on something. Have the questions changed in that time or the methods that you're using? How has it evolved? Um, well, I mean, a lot of the methods are still the same. I guess we've. Um, I think. I think the the question has kind of broadened a lot. So to begin with, you know, we were mostly interested in you know the perception of music and you know how you have internalized musical styles and so on. But but we've we've seen that you know starting out from from a study we did back in two thousand and fourteen, I think, um, where we you know for the first time saw that. Um, uh, uncertainty in 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 in, in, in the perception of melodies can be modeled with entropy and so on. And you know, then a lot of people since then have used entropy to uh, to characterize you know musical pleasure or musical emotions or you know to to relate that to um, to pupil dilation or to you know different psychophysiological measures and so on. So so like the the it has turned out that this has been a really a productive concept for understanding a lot of different aspects of of uh, of our interactions with with music. So it seems like the questions have sort of broadened over the years, I guess. Now we're we're often looking for ways to evidence impacts or sort of show how work can be applied. And one of the aims of this podcast is to provide a communication platform between the researcher and those that can use or can benefit from the findings of your work. Is this something that you think about? And and if so, what do you see as the main contributions of your work to the wider world? Yeah, you know, no, that's that's definitely something I think about. So I I teach uh, music myself. I teach music theory and music history and so on at the at the conservatory level. And and you know we are. We're always trying to figure out, you know, how can we, how can we better communicate? How can we better teach music? So, so I think this, this, this work has has implications for for yeah for for music education first of all. So so kind of you know um, how can how can music theory and and ear training and so on how 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 can the teachings of those topics be kind of tailored towards people's individual listening histories and their individual uh, learning styles and so on. Um, so you know, I think, for instance, we've um, we've found out over the years that a lot of the, the the learning that takes place when you become an expert in a in a given style of of music, a lot of that um, 
learning happens automatically and implicitly and so on. So, so you know, I think that has some implications for the way that we uh, teach these topics and kind of develop, um, you know, um, you know, for, for instance, that 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 would mean that it, you know, exposure is key and, you know, that it has to kind of extend over multiple years and so on. So at the conservatory here, for instance, we we teach music theory for only one semester. And I, I would say, you know, it it takes a bit more than that to um, to really to really, you know, become an expert in a, in a style, I guess. And so 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 part of what we do is is making people more um, explicitly aware of the implicit knowledge that they all already have. So so some of our studies, for instance, showed that, you know, even classical musicians are kind of experts in in the in the bebop jazz style. Um, you know, they they know the the kind of statistics of the style, um, but they're not able to introspect about it to, to the same extent. So it seems seems like, you know, becoming an expert and like, you know, knowing the um, knowing how to play um, a given instrument in a given style and so on that that kind of helps you to become aware of the you know whenever something is is unexpected or um expected or uncertain or certain and so on so so actually you know i see that as a as an important part of what what we do so that's music education then i think also you know um some of the work that we've do, been doing on um uh, cognitive firewalls for instance so it's seeing okay if you train in a specific style um, uh, how is that going to inform your expectations about a different style of music for instance and it seems like these these uh, uh, stylistic models that we acquire are very much kind of you know um, um, separated by what some people have called uh, cognitive firewalls so we're we're quite unlikely to apply a model that is contextually wrong um, in a wrong uh, context you could see say so so that really, I think, has implications for you know cross-cultural understandings and so on. You know that that in a society of today where we become more and more experts in whatever we're doing, you know how how do we how do we continue to be able to to also be able to communicate with people people who are experts in completely different fields and so on. And and that's that's something we see in in the music, but also in the, in in society at at large, I think. Um, so that that could be be really interesting to develop that. And then then thirdly, I would say that you know there's there's been a lot of interest in in the um, evolutionary psychology of music recently. And I think you know some of these um, some of the the work that we've been doing on you know uh, universal um, uh, cognitive constraints and you know what what characterizes music in in the general is you know informs us about you know what what is the role that that music uh, plays in our lives and why do we have music why is music important why should music be funded why should music be taught in schools and so on and i think you know in recent years music scientists and um, and musicians at large have been quite successful in in actually you know getting this message across that music can help us connect with each other and you know, we can build our identity and and things like that. That 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 has kind of become part of the the um, uh, you know the everyday understanding of of what music is. And I think that's that's important for us that we can say, okay, here are some good reasons why we have music, why music exists, and all 
cultures and here here's the impact that it has on our lives and this is why it's essential and so on So as well as chatting to me for the podcast, you're going to be presenting in the Music Cognition Matters speaker series. You've alluded to this already today, um, but can you give us a brief overview of what we can expect from your presentation? Yes, uh, certainly I can. Um, so I, I will take this opportunity to re review some of the research that I've done over the, over the last 10 years, uh, focusing on musical expectations and on expertise in uh, particular. And I will I will show how how these concepts that I call retrospective surprise and prospective uncertainty how they how they interact in intricate ways um, in a multitude of different musical contexts so both relating to perception production and and pleasure I guess involved in music so we'll kind of have four chapters where I'll be looking at first cognition secondly uh, composition thirdly improvisation and finally emotion where you know we've discovered it, that across all of these different um ways of engaging with with the music it it matters both how certain we are about what is going to happen and and how surprised we are about what what happens in the in the end so so um so so that's kind of the uh, the journey that i'll uh, take us on and we'll be uh, re reviewing i think about 10 10 different studies along the way Wow, that sounds great. And I'm very ambitious. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. Now, as part of this speaker series, we are also inviting presenters to issue a call to action or just a prompt for further thought and discussion. So if this is a topic that is of interest and you'd like to be part of that conversation, then make sure you join us for Neil's presentation, which will be on Friday the 2nd of June at 1pm BST. Details can be found in the show notes for this episode and on our website. This research is but one of many projects that you've been working on recently. Is there something else exciting that you're currently working on that we should look out for? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole uh, range of different things, actually. Um, I'm, I'm currently looking for, for funding for a few um, projects that I find exciting, at least, um, um, that I would like to, to carry out. And, um, and one that I would highlight in in particular is is uh, some of the work that I've been doing together with the uh, Lindsay Remore from Arizona State University on on uh, what what we have called instrument specific absolute pitch. So um, so we we probably all um, you know have an idea about what absolute pitch is. You know some some people and um, a lot of musicians you know have this uh, uh, odd ability to identify to to name. Uh, specific notes, uh, which, you know, is an ability that most of us don't have. Um, but there has been a lot of interesting work showing that actually a lot of the, you know, non-musicians even, you know, also have kind of various Im Im implicit, uh, um, uh, you know, um, types of, of absolute pitch skills. So people tend to, you know, be able to, when they sing a well-known a tune they they tend to do it close to to the right pitch and so on so there's there's something interesting going on there with the with non musicians but our, our work is looking at you know so how how is it with um, musicians and and how how is it for pitch on your on your own instrument the instrument that uh, you have uh, trained on does does timbre play some some role in the in in your ability to uh, to name pitch and and I think a lot of us you know haven't have have had this experience of you know like we 
we can maybe also remember how a, how a piece of classical music starts, or if there's a certain key that we played in uh, a lot on our instrument, then we, you know, we, we tend to kind of identify uh, those keys or notes or chords mm -hmm. or whatever more easily. So, so that there's a lot of anecdotal um, evidence on this topic. So we're, we're kind of planning a larger uh, project where we'll, uh, you know, test this more systematically. So a few years ago, we, uh, we published a, a, a theory about instrument-specific absolute pitch and, and about some of the potential mechanisms involved. So, you know, is it possible, for instance, that there are certain, you know, on certain instrument-specific notes, you know, because of the, uh, the physical and constraints of the instrument might, might sound slightly differently. So they might have a, a slightly different timbre. And maybe if you're an expert in these instruments, you are able to pick up on, on some of those uh, very, very subtle cues. Um, you know, could, could that be one way of explaining it? Could it be that there's some kind of, you know, motor activations so, so that when you hear a specific pitch, it kind of activates your, your motor scales, schema for how you would produce that particular um, uh, pitch. And we have different funny ways of, 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 of kind of testing these uh, two uh, mechanisms. And, um, and we have some, some results coming out soon, hopefully with the, with the oboe uh, players. Um, but of course, we're hoping to ex expand this to, to lots of other um, instruments and, and see, you know, because if, if these theories are right, for instance, um, we would also see that certain, that instrument-specific absolute pitch would be more common on some instruments over other instruments and, you know, for, for different types of of, uh, of uh, training and so on. So, so ultimately, we would like to, you know, also conduct um, neuroscience studies on this topic and to to figure out, okay, what, you know, what um, what areas are involved in 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 these kinds of processes and how are people with instrument specific absolute pitch different from um, from from the rest of us? Because it seems like it's a very kind of you have you have people with all degrees of this ability. So lots of brilliant musicians with none of this and and lots of you know other musicians who were who, who can do this very very easily um, so that's a, some something that I'm really looking forward to to delving further into hopefully in the next few years that's that's so interesting and and to add to your anecdotal evidence I have had that experience very recently I am historically a French horn player and you can play a lot of notes on the same valves on a French horn and and I came back to it after about a four-year break last weekend and I couldn't work out if I was on the right note. I had the right fingers down, but I couldn't feel it on my mouth whether I was on the right note anymore. So I don't claim to have absolute pitch, but I think that there are, I think some of those other cues that you were discussing is exactly what I was missing having mm. got out of practice with it. So I am very much looking forward to reading more about that when it comes out. How interesting. Uh, my final question that I ask all guests is what are the most interesting questions that have not yet been explored in music psychology or music cognition? What are the topics that interest you and that we can still learn more about? Or is there something particularly interesting that you have read recently that you would recommend to others? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Um, and I think that there are many, many really good answers to that question as well. And uh, I can I can try for myself. I I anticipate that that in the in the years ahead we'll we'll see a lot more uh, large scale global collaborations. Um, you know, um, you know where you have 
you know, let's say 50 authors involved in in testing one specific music musical phenomenon across different um, different countries and different contexts and so on. So th this is kind of a development that we've seen recently, and I think we're we're going to see even even more of that as a great way of you know making sure we get more diverse data and and that we involve some other parts of the of the world in this kind of research. So at at the moment, I'm in I'm involved in a in a project like that, uh, led by Yutsu Osaki and Pat Savage from from Keio University in uh, Japan, looking at music and language si similarity. So I'm uh, I'm hope hoping to be involved in uh, in hopefully many more of these 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 types of big you know collaborative projects that we also saw under the pandemic, for instance. Mm -hmm. but, but a topic that 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 I would be especially interested in, and this. This grows a little bit out of my uh, music COVID uh, research, I guess. Is um, is the question about you know? So so we we know that the pandemic was a was a crisis. It was a global crisis. It was also a personal crisis for a lot of people. And um, some 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 of the results that we found was that you know music that speaks to the particular situation that you're that you're in. So like music that speaks to how it is to be isolated and at home and so on. That that seems to be the music that helped people the most. And if this is kind of if this idea is extended, you could say that, you know, you would kind of propose the, the theory that is it possible that that music um more broadly has had this role to kind of regulate our emotions in in their times of crisis. And and in, you know, because of course human uh, history and evolution is is long, one long, you know, uh, line of 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 um, uh, catastrophes and crises and so on and and is it possible that that kind of music was was a way of kind of regulating um, regulating our our social behavior and our internal emotions when we're faced with with like drought or famines or war or conflicts um, and epidemics and so on and 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 how can we kind of relate those uh, crisis dynamics because every every crisis is different you know a, a natural disaster is different from an epidemic which is again different from a war where someone is at fault and so on so so different crises have different crisis dynamics and seem to lead to different types of music so i i think this is a this is an area that I'm, i would really like to uh, to look further into Fantastic. Thank you so much. And and thank you for your time today and for sharing your, your work with me. I'm really looking forward to your Music Cognition Matters presentation on Friday. Thanks, Mimi. You can watch Neil's Music Cognition Matters presentation at one o'clock this Friday, the 2nd of June online. The link is in the show notes and can also be found at mass-cog-matters.glitch.me. Thanks for listening and I hope to welcome you back for our next episode. Thank you.